Lord, we love these words. There's so much in life that's not certain, but we love that there's blessed assurance. Lord, I pray today that there would be an open heaven over this room. It would be easy for people to see you. I pray there'd be an open heaven over marriages. I pray there'd be open, an open heaven over parents and children. I pray there'd be an open heaven over the sick today. Be easy for us to see you. Pray an open heaven over the people who own businesses and an open heaven over the people who work in businesses and open heaven over our schools. Just be easy to see you in all of those places to access all that you have. We know that all of our hearts are open to you and we know that all of our desires are known to you. We know that nothing's hidden from you. And so, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you cleanse the thoughts of our hearts so that we could love you more deeply today. We could know you more closely. So we're here. We're listening. Speak to us now. We pray this in your name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Well, I'm so glad you're here. My name's Scott. I serve here as the lead pastor, and um, we're in a series like Aaron told you about, working our way through the Psalms. And I want to talk to you today about something uh, that, that you wrestle with, that I wrestle with. I want to talk to you today about your troubles in your tears. Your troubles in your tears. That's what this Psalm, Psalm 13 talks to us about. And if you have a Bible or on your smartphone, you can open up to Psalm 13. We'll be looking at uh, this all this morning. I want to welcome all of our kids. I'm so glad you're in the room. Hey, parents, if your kid gets squirrely and noisy, I don't want you to be embarrassed. That's the sound of life. And we welcome life. So uh, if someone looks at you funny, you just tell them to come see me after the service. And uh, we'll have a little talk. We'll have a little come to Jesus meeting about life. Well, we're, we're in the Psalms, and uh, we're, we're having this pattern through the summer and where we preach on the Psalm on Sunday and then invite you to take that Psalm and use it in your praying, in your living, Monday through Saturday. And I, I really have an agenda here. And this is my agenda, is I want you to love the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms have been the prayer book for God's people for hundreds, thousands of years. The Psalms were the prayer book of Jesus. So if you're like, well, how do I pray good prayers? I'll tell you how you pray good prayers. Use the Psalms. I use the Psalms. I go through the Psalms. Um, I've told you this many times if you've been here. I use basically a Psalm a day in the morning, and I use that to shape my praying. And, And when you go through the Psalms, what you discover is they are basically a catalog of human emotion and experience. And you find language for expressing the catalog of human motion experience back to God as you go through the Psalms. So I'm hoping that you'll learn to use and love the Psalms if you don't already. Eugene Peterson writes this wonderful book, uh, talked about it a bit last week, about the Psalms, and he says that Psalm 1, which uh, Aaron, Pastor Aaron will be preaching about next Sunday, Psalm 1 is this entrance into the Psalm. There's 150 divisions of the Psalms. And, and you enter in, and Aaron will be talking to you about that next week. And then the last four Psalms, Psalm 147, 8, 9, and 150, are all Psalms of praise. And, and what, what, what we're meant to do with the Psalms, and this is what Jesus did in his life, is live our life in a temple called prayer. Now listen, if you think I mean kneeling at your bedside, 
pressing your hands together and squeezing your eyes and mumbling some words. That's not what I mean. When I'm talking about prayer, a temple of prayer, I'm, I'm saying you could live all of those experiences and circumstances of your life in God's presence because that's what prayer is. It's living your life in God's presence. And so we're working our way through the Psalms, this catalog of human emotion and circumstance. And today uh, we're going to talk about one. It's emblematic of a multitude of the Psalms that we don't like so much. And so I got a disclaimer for you uh, on the front end. It's a bit of a downer. And so just brace yourself for a second. And then I promise you at the end, it gets glad. Now, the Psalms, they they function as a, a set of tools, if you want to look at them that way, for prayer. There are all these categories for the Psalms. Some are Psalms of praise. I mentioned those. Some are, uh, some are, uh, there's cursing Psalms. There's, they're they're called the imprecatory Psalms. That's a fun word to say. Uh, just when you have something bad to say about someone, uh, they're, they're, and then there are this category in the Psalms that we're looking at today. It's, it's emblematic of a, a large category in the Psalms known as the, it's actually a third of the Psalms, a lament, a lament, which is actually a tool for your good. I hope to, hope to show that to you today. So what's a lament? A lament is your troubles and your tears. So I want to talk to you about it like this. Uh, why troubles and tears get to us? Now, let, let me just, uh, I, may, I don't make assumptions here. I don't make assumptions just because you sit here, you believe everything that Christians believe, you believe the Bible. I, I assume there's always some people here who are like, yeah, but and so if you're the yeah, but person, and you, you say, I don't know, you, if, if you believe this is just a material world, and there are plenty of people in our world today who believe this, that's it, which is the material world, then we die. Well, if you have troubles and tears, then if, if it's just material world, then why should those things bother us? It shouldn't even bother us, right? But you all know, whether you believe or don't believe, you know that troubles and tears do. So why do troubles and tears get to us? And then where do we take our troubles and tears? What do we do with them? And then who in the end has and holds our troubles and our tears? How do we find healing for them? Why do we have troubles? Where do we take them? Who has them? Okay, so why do we have troubles and tears? Why do they get to us so much? Uh, why, do you know why David wrote this? You know why David wrote this specific psalm? Um, you may have noticed at the very beginning, I, I don't know how much you read the Bible. I hope you read the Bible a lot. If you go to in the New Testament, what you'll often find are these kind of headers uh, for the text. That was actually not in the original text. The translators put that in to kind of help group the text together. But you'll find those same kinds of headers in the Psalms. Those are actually the original to the Psalms. So they're part of the canon of Scripture. So when you read at the beginning of this, the header of, the, of Psalm 13, uh, for the choir master or for the director of music, a psalm of David. That's this, we're being told something about this psalm. And many scholars think that David wrote this particular song, uh, psalm out of one of two circumstances. One, when Saul, who the people of Israel wanted a king like all the other nations, and so God gave them Saul. And Saul was handsome and he looked like a king, and so they made him their king. And, and then he kind of lost his way, and God anointed David, King David. And um, David was being chased by Saul at one point because Saul realized he was going to lose his throne. And, and so David is hounded. I mean, he's just, he just doesn't know if he's going to make it through. Uh, there's another scene in David's life that some scholars think was happening is when his son Absalom betrayed him. He went and Absalom would sit himself up at, at towns and, and basically uh, politic for himself and for his, his way of doing things. And he betrayed his father. And, and David was just dogged by, by these things and he couldn't get out of them. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. 
there were real things happening in David's life. He wasn't just coming up with words. He was expressing the emotion he felt out of the real things happening in his life. The, the kind of circumstances, and maybe you can relate, that you think will be the end of you. And he thought he wouldn't make it. And he wondered why, why he felt like God had forgotten him. And this was how he felt. So here's what the, psalm, here's what the lament psalms do. is they, they remind us that life's circumstances always bring us questions about God and ourselves. They make us wonder if there's a chasm between me and God. Now, I, I think this affects a person of faith and a person of no faith. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Philip Yancey, and a number of years ago, he's trying to wrestle with this question, and he wrote a wonderful book, I recommend it, called Disappointment with God, person of great faith. At the same time, uh, maybe you are aware of the, the French philosopher, he's long dead now, Voltaire, he was an atheist, and at the end of his life, his last words were, you know, his whole life, he spent his life saying there's no God, this doesn't exist. This is what he says at the end of his life, I am abandoned by God and man. See, life has a way of doing that. Whether we believe or we don't believe, we, with this gap happens, and we go, what's happening? So why do our troubles and tears get to us? I, I really think it centers around the fact that we're often not sure what to do with our feelings. And I think this is a, 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 maybe a gross oversimplification, but I think it's a helpful way to look at it. I, I think there are two bra- basic approaches to our feelings, and they're, they're really opposites. They come from a totally opposite perspective. And, and the two ways of looking at our feelings are a religious way of looking at our feelings and a secular way of looking at our feelings. And, and the reality is, is they're, they're opposites, but both of them have a piece of truth and both of them miss the other's truth. And then they have a mindset that they share that confuses them both. So here's what happens. If you're a religious person, here's what you're often taught. It, it maybe is not explicitly taught, but it's probably imbibed. It's, the idea is when you come to your feelings, it's, it's more like, okay, well, I think you probably ought to ignore your feelings. And, and honestly, if you're religious and you're around a religious environment, you, you likely don't know what to do with your feelings. I know this is a gross generalization. I know this is not true of everybody everywhere, but generally speaking. And there's, a, there's actually a truth, though, that religious people know, is they know that feelings can be shaky and mislead you. But, but here's, here's where it gets a little sticky, is... If you're religious, you're kind of taught to like ignore your feelings or stuff your feelings, and feelings maybe are dangerous. Now, if you're secular, here's what you, it's kind of the opposite. You kind of look at your feelings and you go, well, you know, my feelings, they're everything. I am my feelings. Uh, there's a, and then there's a truth that secular people know. They know that if you don't acknowledge your feelings, then what happens is your feelings end up dominating you without realizing it. You could go into the medical research on the fact that if you don't, you learn to work through your emotion and work through your feeling, it will come out somehow in your body. Often sickness is a result of things we've un, not processed, emotions we've not, it has to come out. And so what a secular person will do about, while well, a religious person might say, just ignore them, you know, they're dangerous, a secular person might look at their, your feelings and say, no, you ought to embrace your feelings. In fact, we're living in a moment when people say, you are your feelings. Whatever you feel, that's who you are. You, you absolutely are your feelings. So, so both of them have a, a piece of truth, and they miss the other's truth. 
So the religious person says, okay, I get to stu- you stuff my feelings, but they miss the truth that it eventually comes out in your body. And, and a religious person often feels like, well, I could never admit what I really feel in the company of the faithful because they would judge me, and then they would think, I don't have enough faith. And so they miss the fact that feelings come out somehow. But then the secular person misses the other truth. They're like, embrace your feelings, you know. But the reality is, is that your feelings change. And so you don't, you don't ever know which feeling to trust. So if you are your feelings, well, which feeling is the real me? Right? It's, it's a very disconcerting way. So on one hand, you're, you're taught to ignore your feelings, and you end up hurting your body. Or on the other hand, you're taught to define yourself by your feelings, and you really end up hurting your future. And I, they're opposite, but they're both, in their own way, helpful and destructive. And so when trouble and tears come, and if that's the lens that you use to process your emotion and your feelings, you don't have a complete solution. And then both of them share a mindset. They they wouldn't say this about each other, but it's the truth. They both have the same mindset about a specific question. And the specific question is, why do bad things happen to good people? And here's what both of them do. Religious people, secular people, same exact thing. Almost the same exact answer. They both assume that when you live a good life, that that forms around you some sort of protection against trouble coming into your life. So if the better you live, you've earned, in a sense, a reprieve from trouble. And so the better you are, the less trouble that you have. You kind of earn, um, maybe a secular person wouldn't say it this way, but a religious person likely would, a righteousness that comes from your moral standing. And if you attain this certain level of goodness or rightness or righteousness, then in some sense you're owed a good life. You know, you're owed no suffering. So a religious person will say, well, I've done well. God owes me. And when trouble comes, a religious person may look at God and go, God, why is this happening in my life? I've done my best. I don't understand. I've done everything you've said. And a secular person, it, it, again, it's the same thing, might not reference God, but they say, I've done well. Life owes me. Why am I not getting what it is that I'm supposed to get? And so when trouble comes, both of those responses to feeling, this is what happens. One of two things. You either will say, okay, well, I hate God and I, or, or I hate life. It's life's unfair. God's terrible. Life's terrible. Or you'll say, I hate myself. Why can't I ever get it right? I, I cannot tell you the number of times as a pastor I've walked with people through very, very difficult things in their life. And, and sometimes people will go through difficult things and in the middle of the difficult trouble and tears, their faith deepens. It's, it's a profoundly holy moment. I'm, I, I feel like I have to take my shoes off when I'm around that. And then I'm around some other people and they go through same, I've watched people go through the exact same thing. And this other person will get bitter, and they'll go, why is God doing this to me? And then I watch them become a deeply bitter person. I've also stood by the bedside of people who I know are on their last few days, a few months, and they know it too. And I've also, they've lamented their life, and they've said, I, what have I done wrong? Why is God punishing me? I, I should have lived, I mean, people who've been in church all their life, I should have lived a better life, and this wouldn't be happening to me and to my 
family. And so when, when you use one of these filters to process your emotion, when trouble and tears come, you're devastated. So where do we take our troubles and tears? Well, here's the beautiful thing about the Psalms. I told you it's the downer on the front end. Okay, it gets better now. <laughs> the Psalms form this wonderful gospel third way. So I don't have to ignore my feelings and I don't have to be defined by my feelings. Instead, here's what the Psalms do. They say, instead of choosing one of those options, here's what you do with your feelings. You pray your feelings. You don't deny, you don't over-embrace, you bring them to God in, in prayer. Remember we talked about there's these various forms of the Psalms and, and almost a third of the Psalms are these, are these kinds of lament psalm. Well, what does that mean? I think this is what it means. I think this is why God put it in the scriptures. A third of the time, we are struggling with troubles and tears in life in some form. Is that right? Do, do you feel that? Now, listen, I, I'm, I'm not saying something super religious here, okay? I, I'm, I'm actually saying something very, very realistic. Um, I would point you to that great work of art, that fine cinematic movie known as The Princess Bride. Do you, do you know this? Yeah, like it's like so, even the teenagers are like, yeah, princess. There's that little scene in there where one of the characters says to the other characters, he says, life is pain. Anyone telling you different is what? Trying to sell you something, right? Well, what do you know when you read this in the Psalms? That the Bible is realistic and it's not trying to sell you anything. It's telling you the truth about your life. It doesn't say, well, if you just will be a good person, then everything will be fine in your life and you will have no troubles. No, the, the Bible is very realistic and says, no, no, uh-uh, no, no. You will absolutely have tears in life. Did you know one of the more famous things Jesus said was, in this world, you will have trouble. I would even go so far as to say, if you're a, a Bible-believing Christian, you will actually, and you're believing, you really are, are doing your best to follow Jesus, that you're going to have more tears in your life and not less. You, you should expect more trouble, and you should expect more tears. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel, um, famous passage, he says that one of the things God will do for us is he will uh, take out of us our heart of stone and put into us a heart of flesh. That's a beautiful image. What's, what is that referencing? What's a heart of stone? A heart of stone is a, a heart that's closed off to feeling. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to be bothered by that. That's not my problem. That's their problem. That's not my issue. That's their issue. No, I don't want to go there. That's a heart of stone. You'll get instead put in a heart of flesh. What's a heart of flesh? That means that you are open to feeling when you see the needs and realities of life. That means, what does that mean? That means you have opened yourself to tears. We were just in Malawi, and I, I think I preached last week because I was jet-lagged. Did I do that? I don't, I'm not sure. I think I, I think I remember being, but that might have been a dream. So if it was a bad sermon, I'm sorry. But we were in Malawi. Malawi is one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. I was born there, and you know we've been building walls there, and we saw a lot of things while we were there. But it came home to me again. I've been in places like Malawi before. How do you go to a place where the need is so unrelenting, it's overwhelming to a degree, you can't even put into words. When you see it, you just go, I don't even know what we'd do. 
And I, I, I still am, I'm still processing things people said to me that were, I did a day for, training day for some pastors and some of the things they said in the question and answer time where we were talking back and forth and about the reality of their world that I know nothing about. I mean, just unrelenting need. And I have, I'm telling you, I've been troubled. I've had tears. I met a, a young man uh, when I was that day, I was helping with the pastors, and, and they had a, a worship band, and, and there was a young man named Kingston, and he's 25, and he's getting a degree um, in engineering, and, and he's gonna, if, if there's anything that Malawi needs, it's infrastructure, and, and I asked him about, you know, how are you, do you go, do you go to another country to see, because their infrastructure is, it's okay in some parts, but most of it not, and he said, no, we don't have the money for that, we can't do that, I thought, how do you how in the world can you build something that you've never seen? I, I don't, how does that work? I'm, I'm telling you, I have trouble and tears. I, so that's what I'm saying. If you follow Jesus, you ought to expect more trouble and more tears because that goes, even the way the scriptures describe Jesus, they say Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus sees his friend who dies, Lazarus. What's it say? Jesus wept. Garden of Gethsemane, ready to face. And Jesus comes to his disciples. He says, oh, my soul's overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. I don't know anybody, me included, who walks around when they're really struggling and when someone says, how are you doing? My soul is overwhelmed with the, to the point of sorrow. You know, like, you know, nobody does that. Jesus did. Well, what, is, what does this teach us? What does this teach us? It, it, it teaches us that if you think you will have a life without trouble or that trouble is payback for not living right, then you haven't yet fully understood Jesus. Who could there be a more innocent person who lived a better life? And what was the outcome of Jesus' life, right? It, like the cross, suffering, trouble, tears. So here's what the Psalms are the Psalms are a place to take your troubles and tears, the real things happening in your life, not the made-up stuff that you think God wants to hear, what's actually happening in your life, to God, in prayer, in the presence of God, the third of your life, that's troubles and tears, are meant to be brought to God in prayer. Like, Notice the text, if you've got it there, verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He feels forgotten. How long will you hide your face from me? He feels neglected. He feels rejected. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? He feels anxiety. Anybody struggle with anxiety? And day after day, I have sorrow in my heart, grief and loss. How long will my enemy triumph over me? He's losing in life. And then, then he gets frustrated, and, he, and, it, and, and the, the verb tense of the language changes in the, in the psalm, and it's a command. This, this David is commanding God. He's, he says, look at me. Answer me, Lord. Come on. I give light to my eyes. Now, when I say all this, this makes some people really uncomfortable, and they go, okay, I mean, I'll listen to the sermon about it, and mm-hmm, um, but I, is it really okay to do that? I'm not sure. I want to give you two words of encouragement, because I'm trying to help you here. Number one, you need to recognize this is in the Bible, and do you know what we believe about how we got the Bible? We do not believe that the Bible came on a fax from heaven, and someone went over and went, oh my gosh, what's it? That's not, that's not how we got the Bible. God worked with people and helped them to write down the things that you and I read in the scriptures and oversaw the process. We called it superintended the process, right? 
like saw the construction process of putting the scriptures together in the way that you and I read them today. What does that mean? That means there's not a mistake in this being in the scriptures. It's there on purpose. God himself orchestrated it so this is in the Bible. Does God make the kind of mistake where he's like, oh, I, I, I'm going to give you some words to say when you're struggling, but I don't really mean it. Second thing is, not only that, this is a song. I, I refer you back to the title, to the choir master, to the director of music. This was a song. It's a, it's a, it's a, the Psalms are, are, in one sense, a, a, a hymn book. And what do you do with a hymn? Well, you sing it over and over and over. Like some of you, you love that song, Highlands, that beautiful song. And then that song, Blessed Assurance, a hymn, I grew up on it. Right? I've sung those words, oh, blessed assurance, Jesus is my, oh, what a foretaste of glory. I mean, these words are stamped on my soul. Well, so what does that mean? That means that this is not a formula, but it is a form or a pattern for your praying. Remember what we said about the Psalms? You, you, you're, you're, the goal is that you would live your life in the temple called prayer, meaning in God's presence. So that means if you have a third of the time in your life that you're dealing with troubles and tears, and, and if you didn't take that at face value, that means you wouldn't take a third of your life to God. Be like, well, God, I'm going to talk to you about two thirds of my life, but not this third. So here's what this means. Now, I want you to stay with me, okay? So this, I promise this is going to help you. That means that a lament like Psalm 13, and there's a bunch of other lament psalms, is actually a form of praise. Because here's what you're saying. God, you are so good that I'm bringing to you all that is bad in my life at this present moment. Do you feel that? God, you are so good that when everything is bad that I can see in the circumstances I'm going through, you can be trusted with my worst. Here you go, God. Are you, that would be a good place to say amen. I thought that would get an amen, but that's, it's okay. You don't have to. It's, it's, it's good. Some of the Psalms, like Psalm, we've looked at already, Psalm 2 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 124, what they do is they orient us. They help us. Some of the other Psalms, like the Lament Psalms, they are for when life disorients us. <laughs> they bring us back to God. It's a form for coming into God's presence when you are in the middle of troubles and tears. It's powerful. Powerful. Now, who in the end has, though, our troubles and our tears? I'm going to invite Sean to come up if you would, Sean. In other words, here's what I mean. How do you find healing for them? I am very, very aware that in life that there are some things that happen that irrevocably change us. I, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and the movies were wonderful, but the books are better. And I love the story. The books have so much detail in them. Uh, J.R. Tolkien was a, a Christian, and he didn't write them as necessarily an allegory, but he said they're, they're an example of what happens in life. And uh, in the story, the main character is Frodo. If you don't know the storyline, Frodo takes this ring of power, this thing of evil and he takes it to Mount Doom and he puts it in Mount Doom to get rid of it forever. And along the way, he's chased by these kind of nine, they call them the ring raids. Do you, do you know this story? And, and he's up at one point and he's on this mountain called Weathertop in the books. It's in the movie as well. But, and he's stabbed by the sword of one of these kind of creatures. It never makes it in the movie, but it's in the books. It's in the books all the way to the very end. 
Every so often, Frodo is going through the, the machinations of his life and his adventure, and he's trying to sort things out. And every now and again, even though there was a, there was a healing to that wound, he'll reach up and he, in the books and he'll, he'll, he'll rub this, and someone will say, oh, what happened? And he'll go, oh, oh, it's that pain from Weathertop, the mountain. And it stays with him all the way to the end. And, and J.R.R. Tolkien has this scene that kind of approximates heaven at the very end of the story beautiful story. But there was this, this, this pain that he felt that came back to him again and again all the way through the story that he felt. And I, I, I recognize, here's what I'm trying to say to you, I recognize that in life some things are like that. Remember I said you're going to have troubles and tears? Like I'm not sure I'll ever, you, you, you talk to a parent who's lost a child, man, I, that is like, oh, to the end. I sat one time with a lady in our church. She was in her late 80s. And I was talking to her about her life. And she was talking about her kids and raising her children. And, and I mean, late, late 80s. And she told me about losing a child when the child was about two or three. And the tears started to come down. Like wound, right? I get there, there are some things. But here's what I'm trying to, here's what I'm trying to say, because this is what the psalm does for us is there actually is healing, and there is full healing in heaven. Yes, that's why we love heaven, because we're like, oh, all that, all that tears, they're gone. But right now, we want to know, who, who has me? Well, what's the psalmist say? He says, I trust in your unfailing love. We've talked about this. This is the Hebrew word, and you need to know it whenever you read it in the psalms. It's the hesed. It's the, the long-suffering love of God, the never-failing love of God, the unending love of God, the covenant love of God, the love of God that's stronger than our stupidity and sin, the love of God that's deeper than the, the bottom of the well of our pain and suffering. It's deeper always, always more. It's the unfailing love of God, he says. And my heart rejoices in your salvation, he says. So it's, it's a word that means okay, when I was in a tight place and when things were pressed in on me and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Grew up in southwest Missouri as a teenager and there's lots of caves and we used to go down caving and we'd get into a cave and there'd be spots you'd have to be, it'd be really tight and it's so dark and you couldn't see if there was an end to the tight spot. And you didn't know if you would ever come out into the open again. Salvation is like, you're going to come out into the open again. It's going to be okay. And do you know what the word in Hebrew is for salvation right here? Do you know what the word, this is going to mean something to about three quarters of you in the room as soon as I say it. you know what the word is? It's Yeshua. Now, if you don't know who Yeshua is, Yeshua is the Hebrew name Joshua, which is translated Jesus, <laughs> right? And the, all, the, all, all of us as Christians, we say the Psalms, what they do is they're looking forward to Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus on the cross, what, what happened to Jesus on the cross? He was forgotten. He was neglected. There was anxiety. There was grief. There was loss. Even on the, psalm, even on the cross, Jesus quotes another one of the lament psalms, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Read it. Jesus on the cross experiences trouble and tears. So you know that he knows that he's, and he did it so he can bring you out into a wide space again. He's the one who has your tears. There's this beautiful image in, in the Psalms, later in the Psalms, Psalm 56, I think it is, where the psalmist writes, says, God, will, will you collect my tears 
in a bottle. Some translations say, will you record my tears on your scroll? And it was this ancient practice when, when a, someone would go off to fight a battle or go on a journey, the, the spouse who stayed home, when they remembered them, they would cry and they would collect the tears in a bottle. And then when they came back, they would say, I just wanted to remind you that I loved you the whole time you were gone. I, I loved you. In, in Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew says about Jesus, he's quoting Isaiah, he says that the way Jesus operates in the world is that a bruised reed he will not crush and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What's a bruised reed? It's like, you've seen a reed, right? It's bruised and it's just bent. And it's like, oh, it's just barely hanging on. And just one more push is going to break that. One more thing, I'm done. What's a smoldering wick? It's like, you know, it's just that, that you blew it out and you can still see the ember. And if you were to blow on it again, it might catch light again. But you're like, oh, I just, fire's almost gone. I got no more in me. What you, the person who has you is Jesus, Yeshua, salvation, the unfailing love of God. A bruised reed he will not crush. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And, and then in Matthew, that section in Matthew says, and in in his name, the nations will put their hope. And if the nations can put their hope in Jesus, that means you can too. I, I thought it would be really fitting that we pray together. I'm going to ask some of our team who pray. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, would you? Um, Cindy, Dave, Brittany, um, Aaron, if you're in the room, they'll come down here. And if you want someone to pray for you, there's oil down here. And uh, we're just in the practice of believing that we can pray with you about anything, emotional, physical, mental. Uh, we just, we want to be a resource. So that if you want someone to pray for you, you can come down at any point here in a minute and, and even after the service is done and, and have someone pray for you. But I, I, I thought, man, it'd be so important. I, I mean, I want this to become a practice in your life like I want this as a practice in my life. Like, okay, God, you're so good. You're so good that I'm bringing you all my bad. It's lament. It's the, I, I want you to have the, the practice, but maybe you need a little practice doing that right now. So would you uh, just have your own moment here, would you? You can close your eyes, bow your head. It's for you. God, we, we bring you right now the troubles and the tears. I know there are people in the room, Lance, others who are just going through it. Lord, we want them fully and completely healed. Healed Lance, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. But Lord, we bring them to you. We, we, we confess and we admit that, well, how long, Lord? How long? Look at me. Answer. But Lord, we confess even more than that. Oh, we trust in your unfailing love. You are our salvation. In the end, you have us. So we put ourselves in your hands right now. Bring your healing, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Pray this in your name. All God's people said.